Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from Transistory. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. If, by now, you know anything about me, dear listener, it's that I have a special affinity for trans men, particularly the trans men of history. And there are none I feel more kinship with than the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the low-down wastrels, the scoundrels, All those trans men who lived their lives on the margins of society, finding their place among the sex workers, petty criminals, and other outcasts. To put it simply, I like bad boys. This month's episode follows the brief life of one such cad, as he stomped around the Pacific Northwest in the United States from the turn of the century through Prohibition. Join us as we indulge in the deliciously seedy life of the bootlegger cowboy, Harry Allen. Harry Allen's ill-fated life began in Seattle, Washington in 1882 under the name Nell Pickerel. Seattle was at that time a boom and bust town, fluctuating between periods of immense prosperity and sudden deprivation. It was also the center of racist conflict on the West Coast between white labor unionists and the Chinese community they viewed as undermining them. Shortly after Harry's birth in 1885 to 1886, a series of race riots burned through Seattle's small Chinese community, led by union organizers and socialists such as Dan Cronin and Mary Kenworthy. The upper classes also disdained the Chinese, and in a strange twist, the mobs who violently attacked and murdered the Chinese included not only European Americans, but also some indigenous people. Things in Seattle only got worse as Harry grew up, resulting in the Great Seattle Fire of 1889, which destroyed much of the city's economic center. But the city rose from the ashes and almost immediately entered an economic boom with the gold rush. During this period, not much is known about Harry's life. 
but by 1898, Harry gave birth to a child. He was only 16. It's unclear who the father was, but evidently, Harry did not want the child and turned it over to his parents to raise. It seems that around this time, Harry began living as a man. He adopted the name Harry Livingstone and wore only men's clothing. This in itself created uproar, leading to several arrests by police. Cross-dressing was not at that time illegal in Seattle. However, they arrested him for creating a disturbance of the peace. This is typical of the period. Police would frequently use public disturbance, loitering, vagrancy, or other nuisance laws to arrest people who did not conform to the gender expectations of the time. Most of those people were LGBT, but it's also worth noting that both suffragettes and sex workers were similarly targeted in the same period. Perhaps feeling the heat, or simply taken with the same current of transience that led many West Coast working men to travel up and down the coast for work, Harry left Seattle and headed north across the border to Vancouver, British Columbia. There exist no known news reports of his adventures or misdeeds in Vancouver, but two years later, upon his return to Seattle in 1900, newspapers as far away as Philadelphia ran stories on him, complete with illustrations claiming he'd been doing some fancy stunts in Vancouver, leaving us today to wonder what exactly that could mean. The newspaper story, titled Woman by Nature, Man by Choice, in May 1900, was sent out as a wire across the country. In it, the police expressed disgust at Harry's return to Seattle. This story started a 22-year obsession in the press about the details of Harry's life. Intriguingly, they wrote an account of Harry's gender that closely resembles later accounts by mid-20th century transsexuals. Quote, Nell dons the bifurcated garments, trousers, because she is convinced that nature ran off on a tangent when she was born. Since nature so unjustly deserted her at the crucial moment, she has determined never to close the breach, but to be a man as nearly as possible. Her ambition as a man is to be a prize fighter. Following the publication of the article, Harry moved on from Seattle. He next pops up in Tunnel City, Washington, which was apparently known as, quote, the wickedest railway camp in America, according to salacious stories in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The camp was for workers on a nearly completed railway tunnel in Stevens Pass in the Cascade Mountains, and was inhabited by laborers with bad reputations. Harry took up a job bartending there, a certainly rough trade considering its customers. One such ne'er-do-well at the camp was Edward Blackjack Morse, who was shot dead during an attempted robbery in Seattle later that year. In his pocket was found a photograph of himself with Harry Allen. Evidently, the two were friends. The press would eventually jump on this connection. Harry was known to engage in drunken boxing fights organized by women at the camp on paydays. Though certainly some, if not all, knew that Harry was assigned female at birth, he was allowed to fight against the cis men. The papers called him incorrigible. 
During his stay in Tunnel City, Harry caroused with women, including a waitress named Dolly Quab. Dolly's legal name was actually Martha, and she came from Portland, Oregon, where her mother lived at 628 South 7th Street. According to the papers, Dolly became infatuated with Harry due to his resemblance to another man who'd broken her heart. Wild with passion, she had an affair with Harry. It's unclear at what point, if at all, Dolly learned that Harry was not cis. Regardless, she soon learned a far more upsetting fact, that Harry was just as unfaithful as the man before. He was also sleeping with a woman named Mabel Tacker. Not only had he slept with her, he was in love with her. The poor, lovelorn Dolly Quapp threw Harry into the headlines again as she drank carbolic acid on Christmas Day, 1901. She ingested the acid around dinner time and died two hours later. A wire story went out again across the country, published the following day as far away as Los Angeles. Things didn't get better for Harry. The following March, Harry's next lover, known only as, quote, a young woman of respectable parentage, similarly committed suicide, supposedly upon learning of Harry's true sex. This story has far fewer details attached to it and has caused some historians to call its validity into question. Journalism at the time was not terribly rigorous, and rumors and innuendo could find its way into print, particularly on an otherwise slow news day. Still, by August 1902, Harry was in trouble with the law again. This time, he'd gotten drunk and punched a cop during an argument. He was thrown into jail for a short time, and in November 1903, another girlfriend of Harry's, Pearl Waldron, a handsome brunette, attempted to shoot herself in the chest over her wild love for him. Unlike the other two, Pearl lived. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling During this time, he worked many different jobs that were common among working-class men of the time. He was a cowboy, a barber, and a longshoreman. And he was well-known for being a talented singer, possessing a deep voice. He was also skilled at the piano, guitar, violin, and slide trombone. Harry's growing rap sheet and association with rough trade made him a target of police harassment. In 1906, police charged him with vagrancy. 
It's believed that they did so just to put the squeeze on him about his possible connections to train robberies carried out by the notorious bandit Bill Miner. A Great Northern train had been robbed in October 1905 in Seattle, almost definitely by Miner, but police were unable to pin Harry to it. As the 1910s began, Harry changed his name from Livingstone to Allen, likely to distance himself from the negative press attention and possibly to evade police. In 1911, he was caught selling alcohol to indigenous people in Spokane, Washington, something that was illegal at the time. Never one to be long without a lover, Harry's next girlfriend, or possibly platonic friend, was a woman named Isabel Maxwell. Isabel worked as a sex worker, and the two decided to travel to Portland, Oregon. There, they took up a single room together. It was an unlucky decision for poor Harry, who probably didn't know that moving across state lines with a sex worker had recently become a felony under the Mann Act of 1910. He was charged with being a white slaver, what is now called a human trafficker. White slavery was an idea born out of white fears following emancipation in the 19th century. Whites were, essentially, afraid that the newly emancipated black people would kidnap and enslave whites as a form of revenge. In particular, they believed that blonde white girls were especially at risk. There's no evidence of this actually happening, but it was a very popular cause among middle-class whites. The press published reams of stories about it, none of which presented actual evidence, and the early women's movement even became quite involved in the fight against this horrible crime that never happened. Laws such as the Mann Act were created to stop the traffic of white girls, but were instead used mostly to attack sex workers, just as laws today like SESTA slash FOSTA say they are to protect trafficking victims, but really are used to attack sex workers. It's worth noting that the Mann Act is still on the books and in regular use today. Harry would have faced very serious jail time under the Mann Act, but a police officer who knew his story arrived and explained that Harry was not cis. The police apparently couldn't believe that someone they perceived to be a woman would traffic or have sex with another woman, and so the Mann Act charges were dropped. However, they still wanted to pin something on Harry. Oregon also lacked anti-cross-dressing laws, so instead they charged him with vagrancy, and he was sentenced to 60 days in jail. During his stay in jail, an anthropology student named Miriam Van Waters was conducting research on women in prison. She met and interviewed Harry, eventually including his case study in her PhD, The Adolescent Girl Among Primitive People, published in 1913. She saw Harry as a sort of proto-feminist icon, an independent woman who cross-dressed to get better-paying jobs. She also wrote that Harry had been married to the father of his child, but given that this is not mentioned in any other source, this is questionable. Miriam's grasp on Harry's identity and life story seems tenuous. A few years pass before Harry appears again. In 1916, Harry got into a heated argument with his father. 
A September 27, 1916 article in the Seattle Star writes, quote, Hot words led to a quarrel, and the quarrel to blows, which suddenly ended when Robert Pickerel, 79, stabbed his daughter Nell Pickerel, a.k.a. Harry Allen, and she sank to the floor severely wounded in the lungs. Harry was rushed to hospital. Nell Pickerel may die of wounds, the Seattle Star reported breathlessly. The hospital had a dim prognosis. The stabbing had severed muscles in his back and created a deep and dangerous wound in his lungs. Harry's father, Robert, claimed that Harry entered his room while he was sleeping and struck him in the mouth, leading Robert to grab the knife he slept with under his pillow for self-protection. However, Harry countered that Robert had reprimanded him for something, and the two had gotten into an argument, with Harry telling his father to keep quiet and not get nosy. Either way, Harry eventually managed to recover. It's unclear whether or not Harry's father was charged for the stabbing. In 1917, lawmakers enacted what was known as a bone-dry prohibition law on the sale and transport of alcohol three years before the National Prohibition Law would be passed. Harry, a known drinker and small-time criminal, was somehow recruited by police as an informant. He snitched on the sellers of alcohol. It's unclear how long this went on for, but he was paid for ratting people out. Harry took up an opium habit and was quickly busted by police. We could speculate that Harry may have started using opium during his recovery from the stabbing, but the addiction wouldn't last long. Just two years later, at the age of 40, Harry Allen died of syphilitic meningitis. Harry Allen was no hero, at least not in the traditional sense. He was perhaps an icon of freedom in the gold rush period for some early feminists. And certainly he is now a legend for trans communities today, particularly in his strong refusal to give up living as a man despite decades of arrests and negative press attention. As some contemporary writers have pointed out, Harry's life resembles that of many marginalized trans youth today who, abandoned by abusive families and a mainstream culture that has no space for them, make their own way on the streets as best they can. But mostly, Harry can be remembered as a bad boy, a scoundrel and heartbreaker who wouldn't give in to any societal expectation. And in this, he's really my type of man. Thanks for listening to another episode of One from the Vaults. 
the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One for the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter or at the show at OFTV Podcast. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. Thank you.